You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And now turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. And when you found your place, let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father, it is so good of you and so wise of you to give us your word. For without it, we would be lost. We would have no idea of what is true and how to discern truth from error. We would we need that revelation, that clear revelation of who you are and what you have done for us in your son. And we thank you for that revelation as given to us through John. And it is our desire and prayer that our eyes might be open to your word this morning and that you would bless by the presence of your spirit and the power of your spirit, the teaching and the hearing of your word, that you would be honored through us and in us and that we would have hearts that are inclined to obedience and given the grace to obey you and to stand in, in awe of Christ for what he has done and for who he is and for the sacrifice that he has made. For it is we thank you in his name. Amen. John chapter 19, let us read together verses 23 through 25 or at least the first part of verse 25. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. And we have a hymn that we sing. We didn't sing it this morning, but it's the, the old rugged cross. And there is a line in there that speaks of the shame and reproach of the cross, which we gladly bear. And it speaks of us as Christians gladly bearing that shame and that reproach. And yet in our culture, we have a hard time understanding or at least appreciating the shamefulness and the reproach of what is the cross and what was the cross. Because we don't think of it as a shameful or reproachful thing in our culture or our context. Uh, it is not uncommon to see people wearing crosses around their necks on a chain or to see them tattoo it on their shoulder or their arm or in the middle of their back or to, to wear it as part of their jewelry or on their shirt. Uh, these things are common in our day because it's, we have lost the sense of reproach and shame that the idea of the cross and the crucifixion carried in the first century. But it was not so in the first century. Today it may mean, it may be a sort of a meaningless, uh, empty expression of some sort of religious symbolism I've encountered people where I'll ask them, is there any symbolism to the cross or are you just wearing it because it's part of your jewelry? And they will say, well, no, my grandma, this was really meaningful to my grandma. It was a necklace my grandma gave me and so now I wear it. But it carries no significance or symbolism for them at all. In the first century, there was a tremendous amount of shame and reproach attached to the idea of crucifixion and to the cross. And it wasn't just in the first century, but actually for a full two centuries after the time of Jesus, until crucifixion was outlawed by the Roman emperor, uh, that idea that the reproach and shame was attached to that very ignominious and disgraceful and disgusting uh, pr- uh, method of executing criminals. Uh, crucifixion was designed to do three things. It was designed to maximize suffering, to maximize shame and humiliation, and to prolong death as long as possible. And it did accomplish all three of those goals. And the Romans had perfected crucifixion to an art form to maximize all three of those things. And in Roman culture and Roman society, it was only the lowest of the low, the dregs of society, the bottom feeders of society, the worst of criminals that were executed on Roman crosses. 
And I understand that there's a little bit of overlap with what I'm covering right now and what Cornell is going through in adult Sunday school class. So I pardon for the, the repetition of what we just covered less than an hour ago. But uh, that, those were the types of criminals that were crucified under Roman law. And Roman citizens themselves were exempt from crucifixion, except in cases of treason. And a Roman citizen could only be crucified if it was personally authorized by the emperor himself. John MacArthur in his book, Hard to Believe, writes this, Crucifixion was a repugnant, demeaning form of execution for the rabble of society. The idea that anybody who died on a cross was in any sense an exceptional, elevated, noble, or important person was absurd. Roman citizens generally were exempt from crucifixion unless they committed treason. The authorities reserved the cross for rebellious slaves and conquered peoples and for notorious robbers and assassins. The Roman Empire's policy on crucifixion led Romans to view any crucified person as absolutely contemptible. The Romans used it only for the scum, the most humiliated, the lowest of the low, end quote. That is the Roman or the Greek idea of crucifixion and its, its sufferers. The Jewish idea or the Jewish view of crucifixion was even worse because the Jews had a passage in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, that says, His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is a curse of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So the Jews viewed anybody who was hung on a tree or from a tree as being especially cursed by God. So the, the, Jew, the Romans had a very low, profane, disgusting view of crucifixion. And the Jewish view of crucifixion was even more profane and even more gross and more disgusting. Now imagine that you are commissioned to step into that culture and proclaim this singular message. That the God of all creation, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the divine Son, the creator of all things, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of David, the promised one, stepped into this creation and he suffered and died all of the pain, all of the the ignobleness of the cross, the shame and the humiliation of it, that wretched death. He suffered and died that at the hands of Roman authorities. Oh, and he rose again from the dead. You think you have a hard sell trying to talk to people about the crucifixion of Christ? When the, when the cross in our day and age isn't even associated with that type of shame and reproach like it was in the first century. That was, a, that was a very unpopular message and it was a very difficult message to get anybody to believe. You're asking me to bow the knee and confess as Lord of all creation a man who was hung on a Roman cross. That's what you're asking me to do. And to give my life to him and to bow down and confess him as Lord over Caesar. And then to be willing to die for such a message and to die for this man, that's your sell, that's your offer, and that I get nothing in exchange for that in this life, but that everything is in the life to come, eternity and forgiveness of sins. That's a difficult message, is it not? It was a difficult message because of the shame and the reproach that was attached to it, because of all the indignities that were suffered as a result and as part of the crucifixion process. And we've looked at some of those indignities in John chapter 19. Being publicly whipped and scourged, being publicly condemned and accused, um, being made to carry your own crossbeam out to the place of your crucifixion, being laid down and nailed to a cross and then hung up in the presence of, of everybody walking in and out of Jerusalem in a very public location on a very uh, crowded day outside the city of Jerusalem. A lot of indignities associated with that. And the passage that we're looking at this morning brings us to yet another indignity that the Lord Jesus suffered in verses 23 through 25 where he is uh, stripped naked of his clothing and all of his clothing uh, is bartered for at the foot of his cross. Now, you may look at verses 23 to 24 and 25 and say there doesn't look like there is a lot there to preach on. 
There really isn't, but you know me, I will find a way to fill our time. Since this passage and this detail is mentioned by all four of the Gospel writers, I think it is significant. And it, it is not just a passing detail, it is something that all four of them mention in a certain way. And John mentions to us that it was actually a fulfillment of an Old Testament Scripture. So we're going to take a look at this passage, and then we're going to take a look back in Psalm 22 at the, the passage that was fulfilled by this. And between the shame of the cross and the symbolism of, of what is being done here and the Scripture that is fulfilled, we will be able to, uh, we'll be able to make a, a full sermon out of this, which I'm sure you're very thankful for that. So that's going to serve as our outline today, the shame of it, the symbolism of it, and then the Scripture that was fulfilled. So let's look first at the shame of this act. Of this act. Verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. Now, it mentions in verse 16 and mentions in verse 18 that they crucified him. And here's what the Roman soldiers would do. After they had crucified him, or that is, hung him up on the cross, they would take the clothes that they had taken off of their victims and they would partition these out apart to each one of the soldiers who was involved in the execution. This was one of the perks of being a soldier who did execution is that you got to plunder any personal effects and any personal belongings of anybody who hung on the cross. This was the custom of crucifixion. They did this not just to Jesus, but to also the other two thieves who were crucified with him. They did this to all crucifixion victims. They took the last remaining articles of their of their clothing and any personal belongings, any personal effects that they had, and they put them all together, and then they would divvy them up amongst whoever was doing the execution. And so though the Scriptures do not mention that the other two thieves had this happen for them as well, it would have happened because that was part of the process of crucifixion, and this was part of the open shame of crucifying somebody public. Now, there are two things that are shameful about having this happen. Number one, that they were stripped naked as part of being crucified. Now, it is common when you see video portrayals or pictures or paintings of the crucifixion scene, you usually see uh, all three persons being crucified and they have some sort of a loincloth over them as part of that. That is a dignity that we afford to those people in the picture, but that is not a dignity that was afforded to crucifixion victims. Part of the shame of being crucified was to be hanged on a cross, publicly naked, having everything taken off of you. No loincloth, nothing to cover them up at all. That was part of the shame and part of the humiliation. And the soldiers would glory in this. They would take those, uh, take those articles of clothing, all of them, and put them together, and then they would divvy this up amongst themselves while the criminals hung on the cross naked. And that is a shameful thing, is it not? And we would all be shamed by that. We're going to find out why that is a shameful thing here in just a moment. Now, all of this is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. And I'll read you just the verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that mention it. Uh, they don't give as much detail as John does, but I want you to hear what they say. In Matthew 27, verse 35, Matthew writes, When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Mark 15:24 says, And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Luke 23:34 says, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Now, John, as is typical of John, gives more detail than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Not because he's adding stuff that didn't happen, but because John, being an eyewitness of these events, is giving to us some things that he knew Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, did not cover. For instance, it is only in John that we find out that there were four soldiers. Do you notice that? Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention this, but John does mention that there are four of them in verse 23. His outer garments, they made, they took all of his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. So it is from John that we find out that there were five articles of clothing that were bartered for and cast and they cast lots for. It is only John that mentions the seamless tunic is that which they cast lots for. Or at least John uh, sort of zeroes in on that. It might be that they had all four of the parts and they would cast lots to determine who the four parts went to. But then they were left over with this seamless tunic. 
And it is that specifically that John focuses in on as the emphasis of the soldiers. They didn't want this to be divided. There's, there's no sense having this torn into four parts and just having four rags when you can have one nice seamless tunic. So it is that that they cast lots for. It is only John that mentions or records the words of the soldiers. It is only John who records that they didn't want to tear the tunic. And it is only John that records that this is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Though the other gospel writers are alluding to Psalm 22, it is only John who specifically quotes the passage from Psalm 22 that this action fulfills. And John is the one who mentions to us that these, these garments were divided into five separate parts, really four parts, so one to each one of the soldiers, but then they had the seamless tunic. And so it is for the seamless tunic that they decide to cast lots. Now, if you, if you want to know what casting lots is like, you can picture something akin to drawing straws or picking a name out of a hat or rolling dice or rock, paper, scissors or whatever it was to the victors go the spoil of that rag, uh, of that tunic. It wouldn't have been rock, paper, scissors. In a Roman context, it probably would have been rock, parchment, sword or something like that. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue like it does rock, paper, scissors does for us. But they would have had some sort of game of chance where the winner would get the seamless tunic. Now, what was the tunic? And this is a difficult thing because I read five different sources and found five different answers to this. And ultimately, people don't exactly know what this was. You'll notice that John distinguishes the outer garments from the tunic. The outer garments were divided. Now, a typical Jewish man would have been dressed in sandals and a belt and an outer robe and a headpiece or a head covering. Those four things. Now, those are probably the four things that were divided up first. So what is the seamless tunic? Some people suggest it was an, an outer robe that Jesus wore on the outside of his outer garments, like an overcoat of some sort. Other people suggest that it was probably an inner uh, an inner garment, the closer to the skin, underneath the outer garment, something akin to us like underwear or an outer, uh, an, an inner piece of clothing. And that's probably more likely what it was, something on the inside, not on the outside. And it was a seamless garment woven from top to bottom in one piece. That's how they would do it. It was not an uncommon thing. It's not like the only this was the only one in the land of Israel, but it was notable enough to the Roman soldiers that they they realized there's no sense in tearing this into four pieces and giving one piece to each. So this is something of value. And no, let's let's cast lots for this. And so they did. There are false teachers, the prosperity gospel false teachers, who use this uh, the presence of this seamless garment as an argument for the idea that Jesus was incredibly wealthy. John Avanzini has done this. See, John Avanzini, a word of faith preacher, has said that the seamless garment was something that with, he uses the, the, some, a phrase, something akin to this. He says it's not something you get off the rack at your local discount store during a blue light special. It's kind of the idea. This was, as John Hagee calls it, a designer original. Something really expensive. And so, see, here's proof that Jesus wore designer clothes. Leave it to a false teacher, a word of faith heretic, to take something associated with the shame and humiliation and the degradation of our Lord and turn it into an excuse for their lascivious and extravagant lifestyle. But that's what they do. So this is not designer clothing. It's just an inner garment that they realized was valuable and worth not splitting up into four parts. And so they cast lots for it. There's a second item of shame associated with this, not only just being stripped naked, but also having all of your possessions plundered before your very eyes. Do you realize how shameful that would be? To to hang on a cross naked in front of everybody and watch the very last of your personal belongings be bartered for and gambled for and tossed up and, and divvied up and looted by ignoble men at the foot of your cross, and you're unable to, unable to do anything about that? You realize how shameful that would be? Because when people start dividing up your possessions, what does that say to you? It's over, right? In their eyes, in the eyes of everybody that matters, you're as good as gone. There's, this is irreversible. And you are watching things that you will never enjoy again, never possess again, never use again, be plundered and looted right in front of your very eyes. Imagine having your children 
sit and bicker over who gets the grandfather clock and the flat screen TV while you're lying on your deathbed in your living room listening to all of this gasping your life, the last of your life's breath. I get called once in a while to do funerals and I was actually called into a situation where this type of plundering actually took place by the family. And I get a call from a, and it wasn't a family in our congregation so don't worry about that. I get, I get calls once in a while from the funeral director and he'll say something like this. Look, we have a family here who's lost a loved one and they want a pastor to do the burial. And they're not associated with any church. Nobody in their family has ever gone to church. Nobody here has any church and nobody knows any pastor. And I've called every pastor in town and all of them are busy and I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel. Jim, will you please come and do the funeral? I know that if they call me, they're desperate. And so I usually, if I can, go and do it. And I went in to do a funeral like this and in talking with one of the, the uh, surviving uh, siblings who, uh, whose, I think, mother or father had passed away. They shared, I could tell that there was some tension in the room and so I, and, and why weren't the other siblings here helping arrange the service, etc. And I just kind of inquired about that. Should I talk to them? Are they going to be here? And, and they just unloaded on me these siblings. I mean, before the corpse had even reached room temperature, the children had swept through the house like a swarm of locusts and looted the entire place in a fashion that would make the marauding armies of Genghis Khan blush. And this had just, the whole family had been ripped apart by that. You realize how shameful and humiliating that is to have that happen? Right? Uh, my grandmother, when she died, my grandmother on my father's side, I went to the funeral. It was at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And after the funeral was done, I sat at the back because I got there kind of late after the funeral was done. I was looking around for my own father. And I said to one of my uncles, where's dad? Why is dad not here? And he said, well, he's down at the bank cashing the inheritance check. We all got it this morning, and he wanted to make sure that it got into the bank before the bank closed. That was my dad. Missed his own mother's funeral so that he could loot her possessions and take what he wanted out of it. That was my father. That is so shameful, isn't it? It's so humiliating to do that to somebody. That is part of the shame of crucifixion. Now, the symbolism of it. There's a symbolism here. We understand why it is shameful. We understand that it is shameful. None of us would want to be put up on public display, stripped of all of our clothing, and made naked in front of men and women, and to have that happen in front of tens of thousands of people. We would not want that. Why is it shameful? Why is it shameful to be stripped of our clothing? There's a reason for that. Why do we wear clothing? The answer to it actually goes back to why we wear clothing in the beginning. Why do we wear clothing? Is it because we just don't want to have to put sunscreen on our whole body? Is it because it is easier to work? We don't want to be exposed to the wind and the rain? Why is it that we do that? Now, those considerations may influence the type of clothing that we buy or the style of clothing that we buy, but they don't explain for us why it is that we wear clothing to begin with. The short answer is this. We wear clothing because of sin. Because Adam and Eve fell in the garden. That sin ruined creation. It ruined God's perfect creation. And sin has now corrupted our sexuality, our understanding of sexuality, our sex drive and all things associated with it, our mind and our bodies. And none of us now, because we cannot be vulnerable with one another, we cannot be honest with one another, we cannot be open with one another, because sin has affected all of this, and sin perverts how we think about these things for that reason, because sin has destroyed all of it, we cover ourselves. So this morning when you got up and you got dressed to come to church, and I'm thankful you did, by the way, you got dressed and you come to church, you were saying something theological. You were saying that because of sin, I have to cover up certain things when I go out in public with other people and to be around other people, because to be uncovered is to be shameful and shamed. And in a culture that glories more and more in nudity and in modesty, that is a culture that has been given more and more over to a depraved mind. It is a culture that says, I will determine what is shameful and what is not. 
I will not obey what God says about these things, and I will glory in the shame that comes from my sin. That's what the culture does. So we cover up because sin has ruined something and destroyed something. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they were realized that they were naked. They were naked before then they realized it. And in realizing they were naked, they felt ashamed, and they wanted to cover themselves, and so they hid from each other, and they hid from God. And so what did God do? God killed an innocent animal to cover, provide a covering for Adam and Eve. So Adam, who brought sin into creation, needed to be covered to have his shame covered. The second Adam, who came and atoned for sin, had that covering removed so that the sin, the shame of that sin would be publicly displayed. There is a reversing of what is going on, even in this act of Jesus' garments being taken off of him and him being publicly shamed. And of course, keep in mind that that shame was for us, so that we might not be ashamed before the Father. He bore that reproach so that we would never be reproached by the Father. He was humiliated so that we could stand faultless in his presence with exceeding joy, without humiliation, without shame, without shame and without reproach. That's the symbolism of it. Now look at the scripture that is fulfilled. Verse 24, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. And now John quotes it. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now John is quoting Psalm 22:18. There are two ways. I'm going to have you in just a second turn back to Psalm 22, but don't do it just yet. There are two ways that the New Testament writers quote and refer to Old Testament passages in connection with a prophecy being fulfilled. At least two ways. Two main ways, I should say. Number one is through allusion. And that is without a direct quotation. They will allude to something, and they do this by describing something in, in such language and using such terms and phrases that it calls to our mind instantly something from the Old Testament. So we already saw that actually last week in connection with Jesus being hung between the two thieves. Uh, Jesus, uh, John mentions that Christ was uh, hung between two thieves, a criminal on e- either side of him, and that calls to our mind Isaiah 53, verses 9 and 12, which says he was numbered with the transgressors and he was with the wicked in his death. So though John doesn't directly quote Isaiah and say, this is to fulfill Isaiah, he describes it in such a way as to allude to that prophecy and to, so that the, the connection is clear. Though it's not explicit, it's very clear. The second way the New Testament authors refer to Old Testament passages and prophecies is by directly quoting them, like John does here. And in connection with the, the, the gambling for garments and the tossing of lots for the garments of Jesus, between the four Gospels, they do this both ways. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't quote the passage, though they do explicitly allude to it, because all of them describe it in such a way that if you only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would read those, that passage about them casting lots for the garments, and you would say, whoa, that sounds exactly like Psalm 22. Because it is described in such a way as to call to mind the very words of Psalm 22. Well, John directly quotes Psalm 22. And as we have done throughout the Gospel of John, every time we find a John directly quoting the Old Testament, we have gone back to that Old Testament passage so that we can see it and appreciate it in its original context. So I ask you to do that now. Turn back to Psalm 22. Let me set up a little bit of the context for you. This psalm is worth at least two messages all by itself, uh, dividing the psalm into two, two parts. Um, I'm not going to do that now. Maybe at some point in the future we'll do it. But I just we just want to hit some of the highlights of Psalm 22 to see the many allusions to things that happened at the crucifixion of Christ, as well as some of the direct quotations from the New Testament. Let me give you a little bit of background from Psalm 22 before we dive into it. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented or, or designed as a method of execution. And yet in Psalm 22, we have the account of David, who was the king of Israel, 
And he is writing here of some instance, some circumstance where he was suffering persecution and affliction at the hands of very ungodly and unrighteous men. And in Psalm 22, David is uh, describing that suffering in a poetic way. Uh, as the king of Israel, David was given the promise that a king would come from his loins, one of his descendants, would sit on his throne. And of course, we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to David regarding a future king and a future kingdom. So David, as the forebearer of Christ, was himself in many ways a shadowing of who this, this coming king would be. His kingdom then was also a shadow of this future great kingdom that this greater king than David will someday reign over and establish here on earth. Okay, so that's a little bit of the, of the background for Psalm 22. Sometimes when you read David's Psalms, you can identify because of something in the introduction or something in the Psalms, some episode in the life of David that the Psalm fits into. Sometimes you see like Psalm 51 actually has in the introduction uh, his confession regarding uh, the incident with Bathsheba. And so then you read that Psalm and you understand David wrote that Psalm at that particular part in his life or point in his life. With Psalm 22, there is nothing in the text that indicates to us and nothing in the life of David that we can connect this to. So it's a very interesting psalm in that there's nothing there's no nothing in David's life recorded in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel or any of the books of Chronicles or Kings. There's nothing in there that we can say, this is when David wrote Psalm 22. There's nothing that indicates. There's nothing we can attach it to. Now let me give you two very unique things about Psalm 22. And this kind of stands out. In Psalm 22, we have... Two things. Number one, no confession of personal sin. Now, this is odd, given that this is the psalm of David, that there is no confession of personal sin. Because David, typically when he was undergoing suffering or affliction at the hands of people unjustly, he would use that as an opportunity to examine himself and he would confess his sin and call out to God for mercy from his sin. But there is in Psalm 22 not a single word of confession anywhere in this psalm. It is almost as if David is writing from the perspective of one who suffered these things without having any sin to confess. Because ultimately the one who would fulfill this psalm did not have himself any sin to confess, did he? So this, there is no confession of sin in this psalm. And second, there is no imprecation in this psalm. An imprecation is a prayer or a calling down of curse upon one's adversaries or enemies. And this again for David is very unique. Because oftentimes in David's psalms you would hear David uh, call down, uh, give imprecatory prayers or imprecatory elements in his prayers and his psalms regarding his suffering, where he would curse his enemies and call on God to curse them. Now, several years ago, we did a series in adult Sunday school class on imprecatory, imprecatory psalms. And I think I counted up at the time, and if memory serves me right, fully two-thirds, and I think a little bit more than two-thirds of the psalms in the Psalter have imprecatory elements in them, some cursing where David curses his enemies and calls God to judge his enemies. And so you read things in those imprecatory psalms like this. May his teeth be bashed in. May, their, may he become childless. May they bash their little ones against the rocks. May they spend their retirement years in a nursing home in Clark Fork. All kinds of horrible things like that that you would never want to curse your enemies with. Those are the type of things you find in David's psalms. But not in this psalm. Not a word or an element of imprecation or cursing for his enemies. Again, it is almost as if David is writing this from the perspective of a man who would be reviled and not revile in return, who himself would pray something like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No cursing and no confession of sin. Because ultimately, Psalm 22, which is sometimes called the Psalm of the Cross, is sometimes called the Fifth Gospel, is such an explicit description of crucifixion in terms of Old Testament prophecy and poetry that the, the allusions and the quotations there are striking. Not only does John quote Psalm 22 in verse uh, 22 verse 18 in his gospel, but the book of Hebrews in chapter 2 quotes verse 20 of Psalm 22 in reference to the Lord Jesus. 
So let me hit the highlights of Psalm 22 and just the parts in here in the first half of this psalm that allude to things that would have taken place at the crucifixion. So you can see what is going on here. Verse 1, the first highlight is in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. That should sound familiar to you for a specific reason. What is it? Because this is one of the seven recorded sayings of Jesus on the cross. And so this is worthy, since next week we're going to be looking at three of the sayings from the cross recorded in John. Uh, This is worth taking a little bit of time and consideration to, to, to think about this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew records the words of Jesus from the cross, cross, Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and that was Aramaic for, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus quotes this this verse, verse 1, from the cross while he is suffering. Now there's some who take this passage, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they couple it with another verse in the Old Testament, Habakkuk 1, verse 13, which says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And they say that because God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil, and because Jesus bore all of the sin of ours on the cross, that at that moment when Jesus was suffering under the wrath of God, that curse of sin, the Father turned His back on the Son and would not look at the Son. And it was there during that great schism between the Father and the Son, while the Father was pouring out His wrath on the Son, that the Father could not look at Him and Jesus was forsaken. And some people even go so far in this teaching as to suggest that there was a division between the Father and the Son in the councils of and between the persons of the Trinity because of the wrath that the Son bore and because of the fact that he had sin put upon him. But when Habakkuk says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil, he doesn't mean that God is looking through the earth and then he says, oh, there's Lanny, I can't look at him because right now he's sinning and my eyes are too pure to look upon evil. I can't look at that. That is not our God. But what Habakkuk is describing is the fact that God is purely and holy and he cannot cause his face to shine in approval and blessing upon that which is evil and wicked. That's the point. Not that God cannot see evil or that he cannot that he cannot tolerate evil, that our eyes do not see it. And so this idea that that Jesus, while he hung on the cross, was forsaken and abandoned by the father, that is not biblical theology. Are we to believe that the son at the very peak and center and climax of his obedience to the Father, while he was doing what he was doing out of his infinite love for his bride, the church, and out of his infinite love for his Father, in that very act of obedience planned and purposed from before the foundation of the world, where the love of the Son and his obedience to the Father were at its greatest point, are we to believe at that point that the Father abandoned him? No. He he did not. Do you understand what that does to your Trinitarian theology to suggest that? You cannot have an orthodox view of Trinitarian theology and to suggest that there was some division between the persons of the Trinity or that the Father abandoned or forsook the Son. The very, fa- the very point of Psalm 22 is that, the, the, that, that this person who suffers this affliction has not been abandoned by God. In fact, that's in verse 24. Look at it. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted nor has he hidden his face from him. Look at that. Nor has he hidden his face from him. He has not been abandoned. He has not been forsaken. Nor has the Father hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. That's the point of the psalm. So then what's going on in verse 1 when David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he really forsaken by God? No, David was at the point where that is exactly how he felt. And to anybody observing his situation and condition, it would have looked as if God had abandoned him. 
And David is expressing there exactly how he felt in those circumstances, calling out to God, not seeing any visible answer. But David came to understand that the reality in verse 24 stands. He has not hidden his face from him. He has not abandoned him. So David's feelings are in verse 1. The fact of the matter is in verse 24. Have you ever been at a point in your life where what you feel to be true, you know to be different than what you know to be true? That your feelings do not line up with reality. And that you can't trust your feelings, but you have to go with what you know to be true. David is expressing his very genuine feeling in verse 1. I feel abandoned. I feel forsaken. But the whole point of, of Psalm 22 is this. He has not hidden his face from him. When I call to him, he is near. He is not distant from the suffering of the afflicted. That is the point. Now, if you have a teaching in Scripture which takes the central point of Psalm 22, which is that God does not abandon the afflicted, and you flip that on your head and you arrive at the doctrine that God has abandoned the afflicted, you have come to 180 degrees opposite of what Scripture teaches. Now, do you think that Jesus, in quoting Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, do you think that Jesus at that moment was unaware of the real meaning behind Psalm 22? That he was somehow ignorant of what the teaching of the psalm was. God has not abandoned the afflicted. He has not forsaken it. Do you think Jesus misquoted Scripture or was twisting it to suggest that the Father had forsaken him? He hadn't. That's the point of Psalm 22. Now, Jesus suffered a real wrath. He suffered real anguish, real pain on the cross. And from the eyes of everybody looking at him, it would have looked as if he was a man forsaken of God, hanging on a tree, cursed by the Father. That's how it would have appeared. And there may even be a sense in which Jesus, the God-man in his humanity, felt abandoned and experienced the feelings of abandonment and forsakenness. But when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, what he is doing is he is taking that entire psalm and he is saying this entire psalm, this verse and all that follows, finds its ultimate fulfillment in me. He was calling the attention of everybody watching to Psalm 22. And they would have seen crucifixion in Psalm 22, and they would have seen the wording of Psalm 22 being played out right in front of them. That's what Jesus was doing. The Father did not turn His back or forsake the Son. We have that song that we sing, How Great the Father's Love for Us, How Vast Beyond All Measure, that He would give His only Son to make a righteous treasure. That is a beautiful song. It's a wonderful song. I love it. There's one phrase in there that I I cannot sing every time we put it up on the overhead. How great the pain of steering loss, the Father turns His face away. Father didn't turn his face away. I mean, it makes makes for great preaching, I guess, to suggest that that was the case. But it's theologically inaccurate. It's wrong to sing that. And I wish legally we could change the wording of the song. Because I would. I love the song. But that one thing, the Father did not turn his face away. The Father was there sustaining the Son the whole time he was suffering to bear the penalty for our sin. So that's the first allusion to the crucifixion is verse 1. Now look down at verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Does that sound like somebody hanging on a cross? Especially given the Roman view of crucifixion, the Jewish view of crucifixion. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he trusts in him. Matthew 27 records the words of passers-by and the chief priests as they stood around the cross. They said this. Matthew writes, verse 20, chapter 27, verses 39 through 44. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Now notice how Matthew is not quoting Psalm 22, but he is using language to allude to it, to it so powerfully that the connection is clear to us. They were wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. 
He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And so those people who were passing by and the chief priests, they took, conscious or unconsciously, they took the very wording of Psalm 22 and they hurled it as abuse at Jesus in the words that they used, in mocking him and taunting him. And in doing that, unconscious to them, they were fulfilling the very words of Psalm 22. They were helping as an, as an unconscious and unwilling testimony to the providence of God. They were pointing the, word, the, the attention of everybody there to the man on the cross and to Psalm 22, even, as while, they were, uh, even while they were abusing him. And the next one is in verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within me. That would describe the melting of the heart of wax would describe the, the absolute exhaustion, the, the coming to the point where you have no strength and no resolve, nothing else to go on, that, that complete abandonment of all hope and, and, all, uh, and all desire. Just You've lost all strength. You've lost everything. There's no heart left. Right? It is melted like wax. All my bones are out of joint. The act of being crucified or the execution by crucifixion would dislocate a number of joints, shoulder joints, rib joints, back joints, leg joints. Uh, the Romans were very creative with how they crucified people and what that would do to, to the skeleton of the person being crucified. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to, the jaw, to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. That describes the, the barrenness, the emptiness, the dryness, the complete desolation of crucifixion. The Roman soldiers would gather around the cross to keep people from giving them water, to keep people from doing anything to alleviate their suffering or keep people from pulling them down off the cross and trying to treat them in any way. So this just describes this act of being absolutely abandoned by people and left out to die on a cross, exposed to the elements, unable to drink, unable to eat, and eventually just to be laid down in the dust of death. Look at verse 16 and 17. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. All the people gathered around the cross maybe even the soldiers, they pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. You could look at a victim hanging from a cross. If they were an average Jewish man, you'd be able to see all their ribs, you'd be able to see their arm bones, you'd be able to see everything. It was almost as if their skeleton was laid bare in front of everybody. You could count all of their bones. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that's John's way of harking us back to Psalm 22. And verse 18 is, in fact, the verse that John quotes. Read it again. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What was David referring to in all of this? Was, were David's hands and feet literally pierced? Was David literally laid in the dust of death? Was, was David literally encompassed about and, and, and pierced in the side and all of those things that would have accompanied crucifixion? No, this doesn't describe what David literally suffered. But in poetic and prophetic language, David is describing what he was feeling and how it felt. And he, yes, he's using hyperbole. Yes, he's using language that is prophetic and poetic. But at the same time, the spirit of God's intention behind this is that what David described in, in, in figurative speech was literally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the greater king who suffered these things. So what is Psalm 22 about? Psalm 22 is about a righteous king who, for no fault of his own, due to no sin of his own, suffered all of this abuse at the hands of wicked and ungodly men and did it without cursing any of his enemies. That's what David wrote. Does that sound like somebody else? I want you to pay attention to, to two things. I want you to pay attention in this passage to how Scripture is fulfilled. These soldiers were not sitting there with Psalm 22 in front of them saying, okay, what do we do next? Okay, we've got to pierce his hands and his feet. Let's do that. And then what do we do next? Now we have to gamble for his garments. 
Those wicked Roman soldiers were not consulting the Old Testament prophets to make sure that they fulfilled all of the details of crucifixion. These wicked Roman soldiers were doing what they did because they had orders, because they did it with wicked motives. They were doing something wicked. But in the plan and providence of God, it ended up fulfilling exactly what God wrote a thousand years earlier. That is how God works out Scripture. He works out all things. He is directing and writing history. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. He is sovereign over these events. He controls them all by his providence. There is nothing outside of his providential control. And God knows exactly what's going to happen before it even happens. And because, because of that, because God has already written history, he knows that the wicked actions of wicked men with their wicked motives is going to fulfill his intentions and his desires. What is written by David a thousand years before Jesus was crucified was predetermined by God before he ever created a molecule or an atom in the whole universe. It was already predetermined by him that this should happen. He is the lamb crucified from before the foundation of the world. This whole thing was already planned by God. But this is how Scripture is fulfilled. Not because they were intending to do this, but what they did with their own wicked intentions ended up fulfilling Scripture. And the second thing I want you to notice from Psalm 22 is I want you to imagine that you are a first century Jew. I want you to put yourself back in their perspective again. I want you to imagine that on Passover that Friday, you are walking into the city of Jerusalem and you are walking past the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the two men who are crucified with him. And you hear this man that is in the middle say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this would catch your attention. And you would look over and you would see the man in the middle who had just said that. And you would say to yourself, wow, that sounds like Psalm 22. And then you would observe a group of evil men who had circled about him and they had pierced his hands and his feet and he has thirsty and he has dried up and all of his bones are out of joint and you can count each and every one of his bones. And then you see the soldier sitting at the foot of the cross, divvying up his garments and gambling and casting lots for his clothing. And you would say to yourself, wow, that sounds like Psalm 22. That sounds like a righteous king who suffered unjustly for no sin of his own and he did so without cursing. So that's David. And then you would read above his head, this is Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And you would rightly think to yourself, it is almost as if David wrote about this man. And indeed David did. And David did, and Isaiah did, and Daniel did, and Moses did. All things that are written in the Old Testament point to him. This is the King of the Jews. And all that he has suffered, and all that shame and that indignity, it was for our sake that he did that. He bore our reproach. And so we gladly bear the reproach of the cross. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, what an, an awesome reminder this passage has been to us that you sovereignly direct all things that happen and you have written history for the glory of your great name and the good of your people. We thank you for that and it's with humbled hearts that we adore Christ and thank you for him and for his sacrifice and what he has done for us. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that this great King of Kings suffered all of these indignities on behalf of his people. And thank you for opening our eyes and our understanding and our hearts that we might respond in faith and obedience and repentance to these things. Thank you for that sufficient sacrifice and all that Christ has done. We love you. You're worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our adoration. And we pray that these things might be pressed upon our hearts even more and more in the days to come. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.